Well, this morning we come to Philippians 3. So we've been working our way through this glorious passage, and we come this morning to this glorious section here at the very end of the chapter, mainly verses 20 and 21. Last week we began studying this, this section, verses 17 through 21, as we take this as a chunk here, as, as one section, and we talked about the citizenship of a true Christian. So this morning we continue with that part two, the citizenship of a true Christian. In the 1992 Summer Olympics, there was a swimmer named Martin Zubero, who was born in the United States and was therefore an American citizen. He attended the University of Florida and he trained for competition here in the U.S. However, his father was a citizen of Spain. And because of his father's citizenship, Zubero was a dual citizen. He had dual citizenship. That summer, 1992, in the Olympics, even though he was an American citizen who trained here in the U.S., he swam under the colors of Spain. Why? Because he felt a greater allegiance to Spain. As Paul writes this section of Philippians 3, he's writing to Philippian believers who are actually citizens of Rome. These Philippian believers are citizens of Rome. But Paul wants them to understand that their allegiance is not to Rome. Their allegiance is not to this world, but their allegiance is to Christ. Because their true citizenship is not of this world, but they're citizens of heaven. And because they're citizens of heaven, their goal is to be like their heavenly master and pursue Christ-likeness. And so, let me read our passage for us and refresh our memory for us as I begin reading Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17. Follow along as I read our passage for us. Paul says this, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, as we've been discussing, from all the way back up in verses 12 through 16, Paul has been telling us that the goal of the Christian life is to be like Christ. It's to pursue Christ's likeness. During our stay here on earth, because this is not our home, we're pursuing after the goal and the prize, which are really the same thing, right? 
We talked about that. The goal and the prize are the same thing. It is pursuing Christ's likeness here on this earth. In fact, we could even say that the goal is spiritual perfection. We're after spiritual perfection. Even though we understand that we are not going to obtain it here, this side of heaven, while we're on earth. We're not going to obtain spiritual perfection, and yet that is the goal to which you and I are after. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're pursuing after until we see Christ face to face, and we will then be spiritually perfected. But we have to continue to pursue that goal. As Paul says there in verse 14, I I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Until God calls me home, I am going to press on for the goal for the prize. And Paul's goal is spiritual perfection. Christ's likeness while he's living his life here on this earth. And that's the same goal for you and I as well. That's the same goal that we're after. We are to be pursuing Christ's likeness. Last week we saw two essentials for living as citizens of heaven during our stay here on earth. As we're pursuing this Christ likeness. Two essentials. And we said that as we are pursuing this Christ likeness, we need to first of all follow godly examples. We must follow godly examples. That is, we follow pastors and elders, church leaders who set the example for us. Just as Paul was a a pastor, an elder, who was modeling for the Philippian believers how they were to live their lives as they are pursuing Christ's likeness. And we are to follow other mature believers who are walking in the same manner. The same pattern of life that Paul and other spiritual leaders are walking. We're to follow after them. We need to mark these people out in our lives and follow their example. And then second, we said that we need to flee worldly enemies. We need to flee worldly enemies. That is, Paul warns about those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. In fact, he talks about them in verse 19. He says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. We're to mark out false teachers and then stay away from them. Flee from worldly teachers, from false teachers. Stay away from them. Why? Because they're going to lead us away from Christ instead of, true, instead of to Christ, right? They're going to lead us away from Him. They'll cause us to put our minds on earthly things just as theirs is. Instead of helping us to grow in sanctification and be more and more like Christ. And so those are two of the three essentials for living as citizens of heaven during our stay here on earth. And now we come to the third essential, which all of you have been waiting for all week long. The third essential for living as citizens of heaven during our stay here on earth is this, that we are to focus on our heavenly Lord Not only do we follow godly examples and flee worldly enemies, but we focus on our heavenly Lord. In fact, notice what Paul says there in verse 20. 
He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. It's in heaven. Notice that word for at the beginning of verse 20. Well, what Paul is doing here is he's explaining why the believers need to imitate him, as he said back up in verse 17. He's explaining why they need to imitate him as opposed to the enemies of the cross of Christ that he just talked about in verses 18 and 19. You see, the enemies of the cross have their focus on earthly things, on things of this world. But the Apostle Paul did not set his mind on the things of this world. In fact, he commanded the believers at Colossae in Colossians 3.2, he said this, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. We need to set our minds on things above. Paul was the example for us of what it means to live the Christian life and focus on our heavenly Lord. As one commentator says, you must not only seek heaven, you must also think heaven. You must not only seek heaven, you must also think heaven. Those of us who are true Christians are to have our focus on things in heaven. That's where the focus needs to be. Why is that to be our focus? Because that's our future, right? That's our destination. That's where we're headed. Our future is not in this world, but our eternal home is heaven. And yet, think about all of the things in this world today that have become a distraction and the evangelical church in America today. A lot of distractions. We've seen this in the rise of the social gospel movement. It's crept into the church and those that are preaching the social gospel stuff, they focus on trying to reform the church and the world through social activities. People then begin to focus on, on poverty and racial issues and social issues where the world and the things of this world then begin to dominate the mind. That's what they begin to focus on. You even have the rise of post-millennialism. There's a, a huge push right now in the church for post-millennialism which denies the rapture of the church, and they teach that it is the church's job to usher in the kingdom of Christ. In fact, many post-millennialists, they, they teach what is called dominion theology. It's very popular today. Dominion theology, which teaches that it is the duty of Christians to create a worldwide kingdom patterned after the Mosaic law. It's the job and the duty of the Christians in the churches to establish the kingdom so that Christ can then come into His kingdom. This type of thinking comes from post-millennial views. Where they deny the rapture of the church. They deny the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign that we see in Revelation 20. 
Postmillennials teach that Christ will return after Christians, not Christ, but after Christians have established the kingdom on this earth. That's what they're teaching. And their efforts and their thinking then becomes about this world and all the things that we have to do as Christians to prepare this world for Christ's coming. That's not what the Scriptures teach us. In fact, hold your finger in Philippians 3 and turn over to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is a great passage for us, a comforting passage for us. And notice in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13 what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. He says this in verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Who's he talking about there? Those who have died. That's what he means by asleep there. Those who have died in Christ. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of our Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And then notice this in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is comforting to us as believers. Our comfort is not that we have to somehow reform this world and Christianize it so that Christ can come back. That's not our comfort. Our comfort is that Christ is going to come back. He is going to come back at any moment and the dead in Christ will be raised and those who are alive will be caught up to meet Him in the air. That's the comfort that we have. Our comfort is up. Our comfort is not down here. Our comfort is in heaven. And Christ is going to return. He's going to come back and He's going to call us to be home with Him. That's the comfort that we have. And when we have a proper understanding of this and our eyes are fixed on Jesus then that should motivate us to go out and to preach the gospel and make disciples just as Christ has commanded us to do, right? That's the motivation to go and make disciples. Not that we have to Christianize this world to prepare the world somehow for Christ's return. No, He's going to come back anytime He chooses when He decides to come back. But understanding that truth then drives us and motivates us to go and make disciples so that there will be others who will join us in being caught up with Christ in the air. 
And when disciples are made, then the world is changed. But our duty is not to Christianize the world or to prepare the world for Christ's arrival. Our duty is to proclaim the gospel so that lost sinners would be saved and disciples of Christ would be made. And then when Jesus returns, then our bodies will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. As our mortal bodies will put on immortality, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. This perishable will put on imperishable. And the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be glorified and we will be like Christ, as John tells us in 1 John 3.2. And then we will have bodies that are fit for heaven. Because that's our home. Heaven is our home. That's where our citizenship is. It's in heaven. Now, turn back to Philippians 3 with me. And notice in verse 20, well, Paul uses this, uses this word citizenship. For our citizenship is in heaven. This word citizenship in is in noun form here in verse 20, and it's the only place in Scripture where this is found. And as Paul writes to the Philippian believers, this would have hit home for them because they understand being citizens of a distant land. They understand being citizens of a distant land. You see, Philippi was a Roman military colony. Really a mini-Rome is what it was. And the citizens of Philippi were, they were proud of their citizenship as Roman citizens. In fact, one commentator says of colonies like Philippi, Roman dress was worn, Roman magistrates governed, the Latin tongue was spoken, Roman justice was administered, Roman morals were observed, even in the ends of the earth they remained unshakably Roman. They were Roman, Roman citizens. That was the people in Philippi. And what Paul is getting at here is that just as you Philippians live like Romans with all of your Roman privileges and Roman customs and Roman laws, even though you don't live in Rome, so you Christians are to live like citizens of heaven even though you aren't living in heaven yet. You're not there yet, right? We look around and we go, yep, not there. Clearly not in heaven. <laughs> We're not there, but we are citizens of heaven. In fact, this world citizenship here refers to a place where a person has official status. It is the state or commonwealth where a person's name was recorded on the register as a citizen. And what Paul is saying here is, your name is written in heaven's book. In the Lamb's book of life, your name is written there. You're citizens of heaven. That's where our citizenship is. And so, what he's saying here to these Philippian believers is, act like citizens of heaven. Not like a citizen of this world. 
We're not to live like the enemies of the cross who only set their minds on earthly things. Our minds should be constantly focused on heavenly things. We should be looking up. Looking up to Christ. Why? Because we're citizens of heaven. Not of this world. In fact, in Ephesians 2.19, Paul says that we are fellow citizens with the saints. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter tells the believer that he's writing to, he tells these believers that they are those who reside as aliens in this world. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, he calls the believers aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. I served under a pastor one time who had on his license plate of his truck, aliens. Aliens. People used to stop him and they would go, oh, you're one of those guys? UFOs and aliens? And he said, no, I'm an alien because I'm not of this world. Because I'm a believer in Christ. And obviously they look with shock, what are you talking about? (laughs) I wanted to talk to you about some aliens and UFOs, you know. (laughs) But he would talk to them about Christ. Because he understood this passage We're aliens and strangers. We're citizens of heaven. Even the men and women in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11.13, they confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They understood that this world was not their home. They're just sojourners who are passing through. One commentator says, our identity and directives arises from realities outside this world. And thus we are forever alien and strangers to that which this world values and demands. What is he saying here? He's saying that our values and our priorities are not the same as those who are of this world. They focus on earthly things because their hope is in this world, right? That's where their hope is at. It's here in this world. But our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Christ, who is seated above, in heaven, at the right hand of the Father. That's where our hope is. Our hope is upward, not here on this earth. And since heaven is our final destination, our minds should be fixed on things above, and our lives should reflect our heavenly citizenship. Now, notice again in verse 20 that word is. You see that word is that's there? For our citizenship is in heaven. Normally that's a word that we would just kind of skip over because we understand what is meant by this word is. But Paul uses a very strategically placed word here in the Greek. It's the word huparko, which means this, to really be there. To exist or to be present. 
And what Paul is saying here is that heaven is not some distant reality. But heaven, for us believers, is a present reality. It's a present reality. Oftentimes, theologians will talk about an already not yet aspect to the promises of God. Already, not yet. We have already been promised heaven. Heaven is already ours, although we are not yet there. Right? You see that? Already, not yet. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 8.30 where he says this, And these whom he predestined he also called, and these whom he called he also justified, and these whom he justified he also glorified. Past tense. Now we look around and we go, glorified? (laughs) Nope, we're not glorified yet, right? We're not glorified. What is Paul talking about there? And already not yet. You are already promised glorification. You are already, in a sense, glorified, even though we're not yet glorified. It's an already not yet. And the same is true with our citizenship in heaven. It's an already, although it's a not yet. There is an already aspect to it, even though we aren't there yet. We are citizens of heaven. As one commentator says, believers are, while living in this present world, already citizens of heaven. The moment that Christ saved us is the moment that you and I became citizens of heaven. We became citizens of another realm. No longer of this earth, but of heaven where Christ is. And so when the world's allurements and temptations come at us, we must remember that we have a commitment to another realm that is not of this world. As Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this realm. And since we belong to Christ, We belong to His kingdom. Our commitment is to the kingdom of heaven. Not this earth. But it's to heaven. Now, as we live as citizens of heaven, we understand that we're only heavenly citizens because we have been saved by Christ, right? And so therefore, because Christ has saved us, He is our Lord. He is our Master. We serve Him, and our lives are to be lived in complete submission and obedience to Him. To our Lord and our Master. He is our King, and we belong to His kingdom. And as we said earlier, our goal is to be what? To be like Him. To be like our King. And so as we live our lives here on this earth, we live our lives focused on our heavenly Lord. To be focused on Christ is to be focused on heaven, right? Heaven is where Christ is. It's where He will come from to take us to be with Him. 
As John MacArthur said, to be preoccupied with Christ is to be preoccupied with heaven. Do you want to be preoccupied with heaven and live as a citizen of heaven? Then be preoccupied with Christ. Think about Christ. Have your mind focused upon Christ. As we live as citizens of heaven. Now as we continue in the second half of verse 20 and into verse 21, there are three truths that Paul tells us about our heavenly Lord. As we focus on our heavenly Lord, there are three truths that Paul tells us about Him. Three things that should occupy our minds as we live as citizens of heaven. And that's what I want us to focus on for the rest of our time here this morning. We're going to see three truths that tell us about our heavenly Lord. The first truth is this. Number one, that He will come again. He will come again. In fact, notice the second half of verse 20. Paul says, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All those who live here on this earth, but who are citizens of heaven, we know that Jesus is going to come again. Because He's promised it to us in His Word. He is going to come again. I just read earlier from 1 Thessalonians 4. We saw that. We know that Christ is going to come again and He's going to rapture us out of here. The dead in Christ are going to rise first and those who are alive will be caught up with them to meet them in the air with the Lord and we will always be with Him. Jesus said in John 14, 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus didn't say, I go and prepare a place for you. Now your job is to prepare the kingdom for me. He didn't say that. He said, I'll come again and I'll receive you to myself. Christ is going to return, and we can be 100% sure of this, church. Christ is going to return, and it'll be a glorious time. And that's the comfort that we have as we live in this world as citizens of heaven. Well, Paul says that we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that after Christ's resurrection in Acts chapter 1, it tells us that Christ ascended in bodily form up to heaven. In fact, listen to the angels in Acts 1.11, what they said to the disciples. They said this, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Now, they had a right perspective, right? They're looking up. But why do you stand here looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He's going to come back again. Then in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, Paul wrote, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
I can remember as a kid when my mom was gone. Growing up without a father, my mom had to work and she would be at work and work late nights. And I remember when there was something that I really needed to ask her. Typically, it was going to a friend's house to go spend the night because a friend had called and invited me. And I just couldn't wait for her to come home. And I remember just peeking out the blinds and you just sit there at the blinds waiting, eagerly waiting for mom to come home so I can ask her, can I go and spend the night at my friend's house? eagerly awaiting for her arrival. And the same is true in the believer's life. We should be eagerly waiting for Christ's arrival. There's an eagerness in the life of believers to Christ's return. Don't we pray that often? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. (laughs) You turn on the news and you see the things that are going on. And it's right to pray that. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Why do we pray that? Because there's an eagerness in our hearts. We long for His return to come and to take us to be with Him. And that's what Paul is telling us here. We eagerly wait for His return. The Greek word there for eagerly waiting not only speaks of eagerness, but it also has an aspect of patience to it as well. That there's patience as we await His return. It indicates here the eager but patient waiting. That is, while we eagerly await His return in our hearts, there is also a patience that we must have as we know that His timing is what? Perfect. It's perfect. Oh, we eagerly long and we await for His return. We want Him to come. And yet at the same time, there's a patience. Lord, you promised you will return. My job is to be patient knowing that your timing is perfect. And as we wait, we're eagerly waiting for, notice what Paul says there, a Savior. We're waiting for a Savior. Now remember from last week, back in verse 19, what is the end of those who are enemies of the cross of Christ? Their end is what? It's destruction. It's destruction. That is, those who are outside of Christ will suffer eternal destruction, eternal damnation. But those who are citizens of heaven have what? a Savior. We have a Savior. We won't be destroyed, but we will be saved. We'll be saved. And who is our Savior? Paul tells us right here, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul describes Christ. Not only is He our Savior, but He is also our what? Our Lord. Our Lord, our Master. We are His slaves, and He is our Master, and we belong to Him. He is not just our Savior, He is also our Lord. Listen, those who are true citizens of heaven don't just see Christ as their Savior, 
But He is our Lord. He is our Master. He is our King. And what has He promised us? He'll come again. He'll come again to take us to be with Him. Well, there's a second truth about Christ that we learn in these verses. A second truth about Christ And that is that He will transform our body. He will transform our body. Look at verse 21. Notice what He says there. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory? Now this entire verse, verse 21, is a relative clause that expounds upon what the Lord Jesus Christ will do. That's what Paul is doing here. He's he's expounding on here's what Christ is going to do as you eagerly await His return. He is going to come back. And remember, what is the goal and the prize? It's to be like Christ. It's to be like Him. Well, Paul tells us here about the prize. And the end of our struggle here in this flesh. We understand the battle and the struggle that we have with the flesh. Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about that. I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I ought to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. There's a battle that happens with us as believers. But Paul tells us here, you're going to receive the prize. You'll receive the prize. And that struggle that you have will be over. (laughs) It'll be done away with. What will the Lord Jesus Christ do? Notice he says there, he will transform the body of our humble state. He will transform us. Notice this, Christ is not only the Savior of our soul, he is the Savior of our body as well. He's not just the Savior of our soul. He's also the Savior of our body, our full being, who we are. Both body and soul. Christ died to redeem both body and soul. Now, for those who die before the return of Christ and who are in heaven now, we know that there's a, a temp a temporary separation of the body from the Spirit. Right? Right now, currently, those who are believers in Christ that have died, that are in heaven, there's this separation that's happened between body and spirit. In fact, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. He says this, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We're of good courage, and I say, and prefer rather, here's what Paul prefers rather, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Paul says, that's what I would rather be. I prefer to be absent from this body. Because I know that when I'm absent from the body, I'm at home with the Lord. I go to be with Him. And so we know that when we die, we're we're absent from this body, but we're home with the Lord. But that's not the end of this body. That's not the end of this body. Our body doesn't just go into the ground and that's it. 
done, over with. Our eternity is not going to be spent as a spirit in some spiritual state. But when Christ returns, as we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, Christ is going to transform this body and fit it for heaven. This body will be made perfect. Our body will be like Christ's resurrected body. You want to know what the resurrection is going to be like? Study Christ after the resurrection. And you'll see and you'll know. Because we will be conformed to the image of His Son. We will be conformed to the image of Christ. And remember, I told you a few weeks ago that that's the purpose for which God saved us, right? To conform us to the image of of Christ. He didn't just save us from our sins. He didn't just save us from an eternity in hell. He saved us to conform us to the image of Christ. Which is exactly what Paul says in verse 21. He says, into conformity with the body of His glory. That word conformity there is talking about a complete transformation. It's a complete transformation, both inward and outward. Our whole being will be completely transformed. And we will then have perfect bodies that are fit for heaven. No more struggle with sin, no more pain, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death, no more wrinkles. Perfect. We will be perfect as Christ is perfect with a body fit for eternity that will never ever die. No more sin, no more struggles with sin. We will always be consistently living in obedience to Christ. This humble state of our bodies, currently as it is, will be done away with, and we will have perfect bodies. Both outward and inner, inward will be perfect. Perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. And church, isn't that a glorious hope? Isn't that a glorious hope? It's glorious for us as believers who are living in the midst of this world right now. As we see all the things that are going on around us, we know we're not citizens of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. And Christ is going to come back because He promised He will. And He's going to transform our body to be with Him for all of eternity. Notice that word will there in verse 21. Who will transform the body. That word there, it comes from the future tense of the word for transform. In the Greek, there's a word transform and it has a future tense to it. And so we translate it as will. That word will there is a promise. That's a promise to us. This is a promise to us from God that this is going to happen. Do we believe in the promises of God? Of course we do. Of course we do. 
this is going to happen. And it brings us great joy to know that this is our future. I had to do a funeral one time for a, a man who died in suddenly in his 50s, sudden heart attack. And it was an open casket. And his mom was there, and his wife of 15 years, she was there as well. They had a daughter, one daughter together. The mom was an unbeliever. And at the end of the funeral, as they came up to the casket to pay respects, the mom came up and she just threw herself onto her son and wept and wept and wept. This man's wife stood behind them all. And obviously she was sad to see that her husband was no longer here. But she knew, I'm going to see him again. She knew this is not the end. For this mother, this was the end. There was no hope. But for this wife, she had hope. She was able to rejoice and sing hallelujah and praise God because she knew, I am going to see my husband again. And the next time that I see him, he is going to be glorified and I am going to be glorified with him. How does she know that? Because she knows the promise of God. Because she knows the God who is promised that He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. She knows that promise and she believes it. And it brings her hope and joy even though she doesn't have her husband here on earth with her anymore. Because she knows she'll see Him again. There's a third truth about Christ that we learn here in this passage. Truth number three is this, that He will show His power. He will show His power. Look at the second half of verse 21. Paul says this, by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. What is Paul saying here? He's telling us how Christ is going to transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of His glory. And how is He going to do it? He'll do it with the great power that He has. He's going to transform our body. It says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye, in an instant, in a moment, with the great power that Christ has, He is going to transform our bodies into a body that's fit for heaven. That word power there in the Greek expresses what is an innate or a natural ability. This is the natural power that Christ has. 
That's what Paul is talking about here. This is natural power that he has. And then that word exertion. One commentator says of it, this word is always in the New Testament used of divine or supernatural working. You believe in the deity of Christ? There it is. This is divine or supernatural workings. This exertion. That word power there is in reference to the power of possibility. That is, it is possible for Christ to do this because He has the natural power to do it. It's not saying here power of possibility as if ah, we don't know if Christ is powerful enough. No, it's power of possibility saying that it is possible for Him because He has the innate, the natural power to do it. To transform our bodies. But that word exertion there is in reference to the power of actuality. That is, it will actually happen. It will happen. Not only does Christ have the natural power to do this, but He will also bring this to pass by His great power. That's the great power that He has. He is the one true God. The second person of the Trinity. The Creator God who has created the heavens and the earth. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has all power and exertion. The power of actuality. This will actually happen. Because he has the power to do it. As one commentator says, at the return of Christ, the innate possibilities of God's power will be put in motion to utterly transform the child of God into conformity with the likeness of Jesus' own body. He will do that because He has all power. Church, do we understand the God that we serve? There is nothing, nothing That is too powerful for our God. He has all power. He has all authority. Because as Paul just told us, He is what? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord. Listen church, when Christ returns, His power will be put on display as He transforms all of us who are citizens of heaven. And He'll fit us with a heavenly body that will be just like His. And some of you might be here this morning realizing, man, I love the world. And the things of this world. My heart is set on the world. I'm consumed about things of the world. It may be because you're not a citizen of heaven. Jesus came and He died on a cross and rose again on the third day to offer you eternal life so that you could be a citizen of heaven. Your sin has separated you from Him 
but he calls you to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you will do that, he will give you the free gift of eternal life where your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. Your citizenship will be in heaven with him. And when he returns, he will transform your body into the likeness of his so that you can have eternity, eternal life with him forever. If you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ, I urge you to do that today. Become a citizen of heaven today. He offers you this free gift. And when he returns, he will put his power on display. But he will not only put his power on display in transforming our bodies, but he will make all things subject to his rule. All things will be subject to his rule. Why? Because he's the king, because he's Lord, because he's master. And as citizens of heaven, our trust, our hope, our joy is found in him. Amen? In closing, the hymn writer Horatio Spafford wrote these words. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Why will our soul be well at that moment? Because that will be the day when the not yet takes place. And we will be just like our Savior, perfectly fit for heaven. May we live our lives today as those who are citizens of heaven, keeping our eyes fixed upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious truth. Thank you for the power that you have as the creator and sustainer of all things. We thank you that you are the sovereign Lord. That you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, we thank you that you have saved us. That you've called us to be yours. And as those who are your children, we know that our citizenship is in heaven. Lord, we do pray, Maranatha, Come, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would come and take us home to be with you. But Lord, as we eagerly wait with patience, Lord, we know that your timing is perfect. And until that time comes, we pray that you would help us to live our lives in obedience to you. That we would live our lives not as citizens of this world, but as citizens of heaven that we would live in obedience to our Master, to our King, to our Lord, our Savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we do it all to bring glory and honor and praise and adoration to your name and to your name alone. We pray this in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.